Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to Off The Beaten Track Podcast. I'm your host, I'm Stu Whiffin. It's another week. Therefore, it's another episode. Well, I hope you're doing well. And uh, it gives me great pleasure today to tell you who I've got on as a guest. I have writer and record label owner, Pete Bahidas, and we have a great chat. It's, uh, it's, it's a real joyful one, this, and there's some just beautiful stories in here that I'm sure uh, are also elaborated further on in uh, Pete's book, Broken Greek, which by the time you finish listening to this episode, uh, I guarantee you'll be going and, and buying it. Uh, I've put the link to, to the book in the bio of this podcast also pete's got a label which has reissued some wonderful um, pieces of music uh, on vinyl uh, which we'll talk about obviously and you can then go and have a look in the the bio as well and i put the link to to pete's record label on there as well um just quickly a few thank yous before we get on with the chat uh thanks to scroobius pip and all my friends at the Distraction Pieces Network. It's a lovely place to be, and I'm very proud to be part of that network. Thanks to 76 for producing this podcast. And if this is your first time listening to Off The Beaten Track, then all I say is once you've listened to my chat with Pete, then go and have a look in the archives. And you can hear me talking to artists as diverse as Fatboy Slim, uh, Tommy Lee of Motley Crue, uh, Chuck D of Public Enemy, uh, Melanie C of Spice Girls, the Foo Fighters, uh, and yeah, well, there's 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 loads. I'm not going to list them. Well, if you like your actors, you can hear me talking to Maxine Peake, uh, Joe Hartley, Amanda Abington. So go and have a, a rummage in the archives, and I'm sure you'll find some some other chats that you're going to enjoy. Um, and if you'd like to support the podcast, that would be much appreciated. Uh, and the way that you can do that is on my Patreon page, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash off the beaten track. And I put up radio shows over there, um, video episodes. And yeah, I normally put about sort of three or four uh, pieces of uh, content up each week over there. So it costs you about 71p a week. But yeah, you get, like I say, four kind of bits and pieces each week and a back catalogue of another 200 or so episodes that have never been released to the general public. You can find out about all of these things at www.offthebeatandtrackpodcast.com. Right, I'm done with all that stuff. I can get on to the good bit now. Please enjoy Off The Beat and Track Podcast with Pete Bahides. <laughs> It's 
Off the Beaten Track podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. It's me, Stu Whipping. Okay, we're recording. How you doing, Pete? I'm very well. It's lovely to be here. Thank you. Good, 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 good. Well, before we talk records, just quickly, um, I'd just like to get your take on, you know, how you found, you know, life as a as as a as a creative um, and life as a as a human being over the last sort of year. Um, well, um, <clears throat> excuse me. I, I guess life for me is pretty much, you know, most of the sort of challenges most people sort of face uh, uh, you know psychologically at any rate uh, sort of uh, 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 sort of true of me so I, I guess you know certainly speaking to a lot of my friends on Facebook and so forth you know there's a lot like a real range of how people are sort of dealing with the lockdown and the, and the anxiety around coronavirus personally I, I just sort of I try not to imagine life beyond my next deadline um, and so I can't I can't totally not not look into the future because obviously you have to do your work but beyond the next day I, I just live in a kind of ever present a kind of present tense world of what am I working on now what needs to be done today and tomorrow and whatever and beyond making sure that you know we've got kind of whatever food we need in the house I'm kind of that's how I'm kind of doing it really um just and and how I'm kind of encouraging sort of gently encouraging my kids to do it when they've kind of been a bit overwhelmed at times but of course I don't want to be too prescriptive about it and you know if you've got feelings about stuff then you've got to be allowed to feel those feelings and kind of work through them so that's the kind of slightly rambly answers to that one how are you doing um I'm yeah I'm okay uh thanks for asking um yeah I'm 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 I think I'm like like you I mean you you've just uh, mentioned that you're in your shed I'm also in 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 my shed and uh and yeah I, f- I felt like it's been it's been a really positive time for for podcasting you know it's something that oh, yeah, was yeah. a kind of I I run a a a, a sort of live venue and and have done for you know close to 30 years so that's been shut so that's been a big part of my life kind of taken away from me at the moment and yeah. uh, so it's a case of in a positive spin on 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 something quite negative insofar as a lot of these musicians and actors can't currently work it's enabled yeah. me to go you got 40 minutes on zoom to have a chat on my podcast yeah. and that's kept me kind of pretty sane i think just being able to Good. you know have naps yeah. with with interesting people uh it's just forward momentum is the key and just sort of and just doing you know like i, I try i try not to be focused on whether or not I'm doing what I'm doing is paid work or whatever, you know, like whether or not it's kind of fiscally sensible to be doing what I'm doing. Cause I'd just rather be doing something than dwelling on things that, that I would inevitably be dwelling upon if I wasn't doing something. So just keeping momentum going is, 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 is necessary. I think. Okay. Let's talk records. Um, <laughs> for track one, I'm going to ask you Pete for the song that you regard as having the greatest ever intro, please. Right. Uh, good. I'm just consulting my notes because for a lot of these things, I've put down different, more than one title and I've told myself that when you ask the question, I will decide in that moment straight away. <laughs> well, if it helps, you're allowed some honourable mentions. Well, I may have to. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to go uh, for... I'm, I'm, I'm not going to go for... Um, 
sweet murder by the blow monkeys even though at, uh, at the listening party T- tim's listening party for it for for the blow monkeys um animal magic album the other day so that i remembered just how amazing the kind of strings and the rhythm and everything of that song was so it's almost sweet murder by the blow monkeys um it's almost banana republic by the boomtown rats which i know is a very unfashionable choice but the band sounds amazing on that song and because the boomtown rats are not cool no one ever no one's ever going to talk about it. no one's ever going to risk talking about how great the boomtown rats uh, singular reggae excursion was mm. but i'm here to say that you know if you just listen with your ears that's an amazing intro as well and uh, but what i'm going for is um is a song by the boo radleys called lazarus oh lovely hey. the, the, the full version absolutely yes. the full version god yes <laughs> yes so the, but lazarus and um I mean, God, what an exciting... I tell you, can I tell you a story about the first time I heard Lazarus? Please. Because it, I'll never forget it. And, you know, and it, it's, it, was, it, was, it was the autumn of 1992. It hadn't come out yet. And I'd been a music journalist. I'd, be, I'd, I'd moved to London to try and become a music journalist. And at that point, I was still signing on. I was just basically trying to catch any bits of work that Melody Maker would give me at the time. And, um, and, you know, I had to kind of phone up to get someone to let me in. And I'd kind of loiter around the office just trying to pick up kind of scrag ends of work. I was like right at the bottom of the pecking order. And, uh, and the Boo Radleys at Melody Maker at that point, they weren't a massively well-loved band because it had been decided by the kind of the real alpha, alpha journalists on the paper that they were kind of blighted by shoegazing and we didn't like shoegazing anymore and you know, i don't know what we were supposed to like maybe it was grunge post grunge or whatever and um and anyway this record came in i just managed it i'd only just started being sent records so i opened an envelope and it was and i put it on and um and i just this is mind-blowing because people don't know it and i'm sure people go and kind of go off and play it now um it's got this, um, it, it just was unrecognizable from the band that I had thought was the Boo Radleys before. It was just had this wonderful, really confident, assured, rumbling, kind of ascending kind of dub intro. I mean, I like, I liked kind of, you know, I didn't know a huge amount of reggae, but I'd heard enough to know that I liked what I liked, especially on New Sound stuff. And, you know, this could really pass muster, you know, in the company of those slightly more, you know, like, you know, as a, as a, on a singers and players album, of course, until the singing starts, and then it becomes a different thing. But um, but it had that kind of Adrian Sherwoody kind of rumbling kind of, and then um, and then something amazing happens. Uh, you know, it's a long intro; it's maybe about two or three minutes or something. And then, as you know, because you've obviously heard it, uh, then the bass line starts to ascend, and there's this kind of slight kind of something is about to. I mean, it's a song called Lazarus, so obviously. A, a kind of imminent takeoff is implied, some kind of, and it rises, and then that kind of those trumpets sort of come in, and you know you don't care what happens in the rest of the song because that's just the best intro you've ever heard. And anyway, so I thought, well, if I just kind of run into the office telling everyone that the Boo Radleys have made like you know possibly the single of the year, no one's going to be no one. Yeah, half, half of the people in the office weren't even talking to me; they wouldn't even say hello to me. So, um, and every week, every Tuesday morning, there was an editorial meeting when the freshly kind of 
um, just off the printing press, copies of Moneymaker would come in. Everyone would kind of, there was, they were in a pile by the door and everyone would grab one as they came in and you'd go through the pages of the magazine and, you know, the editor would sort of say, okay, any thoughts about this week's issue? Anyway, um, you'd have to go in early to kind of grab a seat and I'd kind of, so I'd grab a seat and there was a CD player in the reviews room. And I thought, well, the best thing I can do to really tell everyone what a great song this is, is to just kind of play it in the CD player as people are coming into the editorial meeting. And it can't, so you, you essentially caught people unawares because people are so, so, oh, this is good. What's this? What's this? Who put this on? It's the new Boo Radley single. And, um, and that was the beginning of quite a long, not only like my my fanhood of the Burellis, but um, but the beginning of a kind of friendship with them, especially with Martin, who I kind of continued to know all these years. And uh, so yes, that's uh, absolutely the song with the greatest uh, intro for that's the purpose a- of today's conversation. Until I think of another one. That's a wonderful choice. I can't believe anyone's never chose that before. It's uh, when ah. that when that does drop as well. It's so huge. Them trumpets just absolutely boom through it's I, I was i was lucky that um they toured the album they played my venue uh on on that record or i should know and, what your venue is i'm so sorry Tell that's me all right it's, it's called the pink toothbrush and uh wow. what the pink amazing wow okay god the amount of times i've typed out that name <laughs> I thought you might have scribbled about it a few times. Um, oh, man. <laughs> Sorry, carry on. Um, yeah, and, and it was, you know, just hearing that, it was just, yeah, it's, it's a fucking incredible record. Yeah, great shout, yeah. mate. Oh, good, good. Okay, well, let's, let's go back a little further for track two, Pete, and I'm going to ask you the first song that you remember hearing that had an emotional impact on you, please. Does it have to be the very first? Are we doing this absolutely by the book? Or no. can it be one of, one of the first? It can be one of the first, mate. Okay, thank you. Because I've talked a little bit about Sugar Baby Love by the Rebets in the past. I mentioned it in my book. I've talked about probably the very first, really, strictly speaking, is My Sweet Lord, because I remember um, uh, my parents. My parents uh, uh, are Greek, and, you know, uh, when, when I was very, very young, They'd shut their fish and chip shop uh, down for a few weeks in the summer. And then they'd embark on this huge odyssey um, across Europe, through Belgium and Yugoslavia and into Greece. Um, to um, uh, And we'd go, go to Greece and Cyprus. I remember My Sweet Lord playing in the car and me kind of falling asleep, drifting, drifting off in the back seat, kind of on my mum's lap. And that feel it's a song that promotes kind of sense well-being and security and and all being well with the world anyway i'm not going to choose that (laughs) because i've talked about that quite a lot in the past so let's talk about um airport by the motors um because that um i found that devastated me a little bit when it came out i just sort of um so for people who don't know, the Motors are sort of British, um, kind of a new wave group. Mm-hmm. They're around in the new wave era, although, you know, they're probably a little bit power pop as well. And, um, and you know, certain songs kind of preview uh, emotions that you don't fully understand, but they're completely freighted with that emotion. And I remember being completely like... Um, just the just not really having had first hand um uh, um experienced first hand 
the kind of pain that airport um, that airport by the motors um, talks about. And um, so, for people who don't know, it's a song about um, it's a song about almost like the culprit of the song is an airport is the airport that conspires that is an uh, an accessory in taking your love away your lover away from you and um and this airport and I, and you know i've been to airports at that point in my life because you know when we weren't driving across greece we 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 to greece we'd fly there to, or to cyprus and they're emotional places and it's such a clever song because it sort of it takes this um you know a large building uh, or a network of buildings and which is you know in itself is not an emotional thing but they they're the scenes where they're scenes where moments, you know, life-defining often moments of uh, of great emotional import happen, and um, and I don't really know what happens in the song musically for 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 it to carry it so well, but um, but it's just um, that kind of hook, that sort of keyboard hook, which is just so kind of there's it's just kind of there's a kind of pain soaked into that, and um, and because of the tempo of the song kind of it's whatever's happening there's a great thing about the tempo of the song that whatever's happening whatever's described in the song is clearly unstoppable it's kind of beyond the power of the protagonist and the subject of the song to do anything about it it's like this it's almost like that person could be being deported or or you know that kind of what it Whatever, whatever's happening is beyond the control of the people who are so upset about it, and uh, and the impassiveness of the, of the airport when it's been directly addressed, and then you got that amazing. And when you think you can't get any sadder, there's that kind of lovely kind of solo. Um, it's it's a keyboard solo, isn't it? Towards the end of the song, and it's just. Um, it's just not, you know, like I used to. I taped it off the radio, and it just sort of. I was fascinated by. I was only what eight or nine or something. I was nine. I was fascinated by like how a song like that could kind of be freighted with so much emotion, really. And I felt definitely felt it. What yeah. was it? What was the emotion? Um, I think it was. Um, I think it. I think it was just. I think it was just straight ahead sadness, but it's the sadness of having something gonna something that you cannot change there's something that you cannot um something that is completely beyond your control this separation i had separation anxiety which i talk about quite a lot in in my book broken greek which is um you know i sort of, i was constantly i was constantly thought that this is terrible really because my parents were absolutely loved me you know i had no reason to really sort of think seriously think that they were secretly planning to um to to sort of leave, leave me but um but because um because of a number of things because i was for three years i was a selective mute which meant that i didn't apart from my family i didn't talk to anyone in the outside world and uh and i thought that i kind of realized it was a huge source of embarrassment to my parents and uh, so, especially social embarrassment around Christmas when friends of the family would come over and this weird kind of mute child. And in Cypriot culture especially, there's a real emphasis on being, on not embarrassed, not being embarrassed, not being normal, not standing out in any way. And you pick up a lot when you're a kid. Um, and I sort of think that, um, and so I sort of thought that, 
you know, I've mentioned this quite a few times, but um, I, I thought I, I would watch Top of the Pops and, uh, and my favourite pop stars were generally pop stars who I thought could step in and be my adoptive parents if... Um, if um, if my parents quite understandably and you know took me back to wherever you take children to if you know you don't kind of <laughs> want them anymore uh so separation anxieties around separation loomed large in my in my thoughts and actually i didn't really until i started talking about airport i didn't sort of realize that actually that might that might be why that song bothered me so much yeah. you know it was a it also came out around the same time as this disastrous holiday. Like my dad, um, took, one day my dad, uh, one summer my dad took me and my brother on holiday to Cyprus, and my mum stayed behind and looked after their their, their fish and chip sh- the fish and chip shop, and uh, and I, <laughs> I was got some, uh, it was a weird idea in my head that actually um, we might never come back. Like my dad might because I knew my dad wanted to go back to Cyprus, so I thought. I mean, kidnapping is too strong a word. I don't really want to sort of, you know, like... <laughs> you were thinking it, though, right? <laughs> my dad was I'm not even sure that if, you know, technically... It's like, you know, when you're on the on the tube or something, you hear, like, uh, some, some bloke who works in an office saying, you know, saying to their mate... Um, well, actually, look, my wife's going out tonight, so I've got to child mind my kids, you know. And like, well, can you actually child mind your own children? I'm not sure if that's. I think that's just parenting. Um, so anyway, I think he was taking us to Cyprus on holiday. I thought, I guess, if he kept us there against our our, our wishes, I guess that would be kidnapping. I guess, but it seems like a very hard. <laughs> anyway, I sort of thought that because I knew he really wanted to us to live in Cyprus I thought that you know we were there for like four or five weeks I thought okay well if he just decides not to come back then what what are we gonna do you know I've got like you know he's got the passports um you know we I'm fucked really you know I'm so (laughs) I'm just gonna have to like start a new life and so and I was really really worried at the time because um I got uh, at the time. I had a much older cousin who was in the Cypriot army. Everyone, you have to do national service mm. in Cyprus. And he came. He just turned up one day in uh, my aunt's house. You know, he was on leave from the army, and he in his army kind of, you know, in his khaki clothes and his boots and his hat. And you know, he had short hair. And last time I saw him, he looked like David Cassidy or something in double denim. And suddenly, he looked like a very old, much older. He was a soldier, you know, and. Uh, and everyone, so I thought, oh God, fucking hell, I'm going to have to, if we, if we stay here, I'm going to have to join the army. Like, I might die, you know. And, you know, you join the army at 16, in, like 16 or 17 in Cyprus. So, like, so, you know, we're talking about like six, six or seven years' time, you know. So, um, so I was really, really scared, you know. So, all these things kind of fed into exacerbating my separation anxiety. <laughs> well, before we, we, we chat, uh, uh, track three just quickly if your parents were going to part x you to uh some top of the pops um uh superstars who was in the kind of short listing who who was it you was quite hoping would uh would pick you up uh, and, uh, and deal with you well um the, the i guess the top there's like four real front runners <laughs> so um uh Bro- brotherhood of man all four I of them well, I thought they could tag team it because obviously um, Wise. they, you know, because I didn't really want to be an imposition. I was enough of an imposition on my parents. So 
fuck, you know, I didn't really want to be like... So I thought, okay, well, they're on tour a lot, but that's fine, because they can just take me... They're doing cabaret. They can... I'll just tag along. It's mm. fine. And... Uh, and I knew they'd be good parents because because of Save Your Kisses for me. You know, they'd written a whole song about how much they missed, you know, their their child, even though they were only three. And um, and so I thought, well, that's a pretty. I you know, of course, the other thing, I, the other reason I thought, well, my parents probably do want to take me back to the shop wherever you take your children back to if you don't want them is because I wasn't very Greek. You see, all the things that I was really excited about were British. And I knew that my parents were kind of quite wanted us to be more Greek, you know, quite. They wanted to bring, they were Greek. They wanted to bring up Greek kids. Totally understandable. But actually, I was gradually feeling myself becoming more English. So actually, the idea of having English parents as well, much to my, I'm embarrassed, you know, because I, I love my parents. But nevertheless, the idea of having British parents is quite exciting. And so Brotherhood of Man um, and uh, and also... Similar tag team aspect, Abba, um, and especially Agneta, because I just thought, you know, she whenever she did interviews, she talked about how much she missed her children. She didn't like touring because, you know, it caused her a lot of anguish, anguish being away from her kids. So uh, I thought, well, you know, that'd be good. Uh, she, you know, I, she can just bring me with her. That'd be fine. Uh, and you know, I can note the way Frida and Anietta looked at the children in Swap Shop. So basically, when they're on Swap Shop, <laughs> Noel Edmonds, people who don't know, uh, Noel Edmonds Multicolored Swap Shop was a very popular children's program on Saturday mornings. It was like almost like a TV station in its own right because there were kind of like programs that you know, it was so long that you could get a whole episode of Scooby Doo in it and a whole episode of the Hair Bear Bunch in it. And it had a news bulletin. So it was really like you didn't need any other TV. You just needed Swap Shop. And, uh, uh, and Abba really liked Abba always pre- preferred to go on Swap Shop than Tiz was because Tiz was a bit too, an- too anarchic. They didn't want to get pelted with custard pies. So Abba was the same. And I noticed that whenever Abba were on Noel Edmonds Swap Shop, uh, like while, while Benny and Bjorn would sort of talk about the kind of technicalities of writing their amazing songs. Agneta and Anifrid would just kind of zone out a bit and just look at the cute children that were dotted around the side of the studio. And in that moment, I was like, I was there. I was like one of those cute little children being waved at by Agneta. And uh, so um, so that, and then the others, so the other kind of, in the kind of like well, the shortlist for p- potential parents were Kiki D. Uh, because of her, because of mainly because of "Don't Go Breaking My Heart" uh, and the kind of fantastic dungarees and sort of, she looked like a play school presenter, didn't she? Yeah, massively. Yeah, she she looked very kind, you know. And uh, I just thought, you know, you could tell she was a nice person because she'd let that this weird guy like sing on her song mm. with her, and I didn't know who he was, but like, you know, she was great, you know. And uh, and then. Um, uh, then who's and then a bit later Olivia Newton John obviously, obviously you know but but um, wholesome Olivia Newton John oh, or kind of end of Greece Olivia Newton John no I mean I appreciate end of Greece now Olivia now but at the time at end of Greece Olivia terrified me and disappointed me slightly because I thought Olivia stick to your guns you don't have to become a lady of the night to 
you what I what I mean I don't mean that in the euphemistic you know I don't mean that you know because I didn't know what lady of the night was a euphemism yeah, for that sure. just generally you didn't need to go into the, the darkness yeah just to make John just to make Danny Zuko fancy you yeah you know you're you're great as you are yeah Sandy and and then um when she appeared uh and her first um Post Greece uh, a TV appearance was on Parkinson uh, performing a new single, A Little More Love. And she kind of, she looked slightly more like Sandy, early Greece Sandy, than because she had sort of straight blonde hair again. And she didn't look like she smoked cigarettes in fairgrounds. Uh, and, uh, and she did A Little More Love, which was also a song I found very emotionally. Um, uh, uh, affecting because you know in that song she plays a kind of protagonist who's really trying to get some kind of emotional commitment out of her partner and you know it's kind of not really happening so i i loved it for that great list of potential parents there pete um for track three pete i'm going to ask you the song reminds you of your time at school please right okay i mean this is a very 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 difficult really um um i think i'm gonna go i mean like you know like anyone dozens of songs hundreds of songs remind me of my school days uh i think i'll go for um i'll go yeah i'll go for um hmm i'll go okay it's it's i sorry it's either going to be People Are Strange by The Doors or uh, that would be senior school, that would be secondary school and junior school would be uh, Food for Thought by UB40. And it'd be Food for Thought because um, I remember, I've got this real, i got this very, very strong sort of memory of just suddenly Food for Thought being everywhere. And there was a certain amount of civic pride because it was UB40. UB40 were from Birmingham. And actually, they got together. The place where they got together was just about two miles away from where I grew up in Mosley. They got together kind of around a sort of squat, I think, in Mosley. And I remember um, there being a lot of excitement uh, one Friday afternoon when we, uh, we went on a school trip to Atherstone Youth Hostel. Uh, which was sort of on the outskirts of the Midlands. And uh, it was the first time I'd been away from my parents for a weekend. So clearly the separation anxiety was subsiding a bit because I was allowing myself, because if that had been about a year before, I would have been worried that I'd get back and then my parents would have just fled. So so it's clearly in a more secure place. And I remember the thing I remember about you before that you food for thought was that <clears throat> it kind of it sounded like I'd heard reggae. I didn't know too much about reggae, but I'd heard reggae, and reggae to me was like a it evoked sunshine, it evoked a faraway place where the sun was always shining. <clears throat> and um, but this didn't sound food 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 for thought didn't sound like that at all. It sounded like industrial. England it sounded like the Midlands it sounded like soot it sounded like um winter it sounded like rain and um 
and yet it was palpably reggae it was a reggae song and um and i remember being uh, sitting in the back of this minibus uh, before this seems amazing to me now but the school minibus was the most health and safety flouting um vehicle for the for children imaginable it was just basically a transit van with either side of the transit van, the interior of the transit van, two long benches, and you'd put your bags and stuff in the middle, and you just sat there, no, no seatbelt. You're all just like free-range children in a in the back of a in the back of a transit van. I mean, I think even even sheep are more protected now when they kind of <laughs> when they go off. The, and you know, they're about to die. You know, <laughs> so we were sort of. And I remember. Um, the teacher just turning the car radio on and food for thought just merging that's a great thing about like when you listen to music as a kid you know you have this kind of synesthetic reaction to music and you know i remember like looking through the window this kind of the rain kind of lashing down and it was it was it was late in the afternoon it was winter so it was dark and you'd see the kind of lights of the factory lights in the rain and it just felt just so evocative and so appropriate to have this. I mean, to, not in a way that I wouldn't have been able to articulate to myself at the time. But yes, that's that is what reggae. That's what happens to reggae when you move it to Birmingham. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and uh, so that was uh, that was. A, and so I still, you know. And then the album came out, and I used to listen to the album a lot. I couldn't really, I couldn't afford to buy the album. Um, but it used to be played all the time. Signing off was the album, and it, it used to be played a lot in um, in uh, the two kind of two shops in the bit of Birmingham where I lived. A shop called Predies, which was a sort of like pre W H Smith kind of shop that sells books and records and stationery and magazines and so forth, and uh, and then um, and Woolworths, and the, the the there was a sort of the the, the I guess. It, young woman or late tea or girl like old girl in her late teens who used to work in the music section um uh, uh or worse she was obsessed with it because it was it was all that was playing it was very weird to hear this very kind of um bleak music kind of piping out over the tannoy at Woolworths as you were sort of trying to you know you're trying to work out whether or not you'd buy some pick and mix or perhaps some ham from the deli because of course the Woolworths had deli counters at the time so you could actually you could go if you had a pound you could either buy some sweets or a record or some hazlitt and uh that's kind of a weird thing to think about now i don't maybe... i don't recall that i do not recall deli i mean i remember like occasionally sort of maybe grabbing a little sweet from what was an island of pick a mix, it was mm. it was huge, wasn't it? In Woolworths, it was yeah, like, yeah. Uh, and I remember, you know, occasionally like sticking one in my pocket. So it, it felt like you couldn't afford pick a mix. That was the sort of thing your parents yeah. got, like, or your nan had. Like, it's too much freedom as well. I mean, it was like I was overwhelmed by the kind of freedom afforded by the pick and mix, and uh, <laughs> you're discouraged. Of course, you know they had like. Quality Street, and you know you you were kind of tempted to sort of get the the green triangles or whatever yeah. was your favourite, but the the big ticket items like you know big purple ones or whatever tend to be you know the, I I don't know if they had like they had to top those up manually you know because obviously there are certain sweets that people were going to go for more than others, 
anyway, I mean, I don't know if uh, maybe some Woolworths didn't have a deli counter, but I remember ours because I remember I've got this. I'm, I think I'm slightly possibly a little bit on the spectrum because I've got this weird memory for like when I first heard the first time I hear a word, a new word, or the first time I see a new word, I, I kind of remember it. And, um, and so that was why I mentioned Hazlitt earlier on, because the first time I saw the word Hazlitt <laughs> was in um, the, uh, it was on a little kind of sign in the deli counter at Acox Green Woolworths. Uh, and then the other, so briefly, the other song that reminds me, and you can just choose one, or you can just edit, you know, edit one out. Well, uh, we put together a, a playlist as well to accompany it, so we put them all on it, it's fine. Do you? Okay. Well, the other one I'll choose, because secondary school, is People Are Strange by The Doors, because by the time I was um, pushing on for 14, I, I, I was very much, I, I, I'd kind of, I felt like I'd been slightly let down by systems that are in place to sort of keep you sweet and innocent. And the world was starting to seem like a disappointing place for a kind of maverick like me. Um, and, uh, and you know, I sort of started writing a little bit of poetry and, you know, got into the doors in a big way. And Jim Morrison was clearly um, the cleverest man who ever lived. Too clever to have lived, really. Um, maybe that's why he had to... Um, die or did he die really because obviously there was at the time a lot of people felt because so not many people saw the body then he'd sort of started a new life as an anonymous poet somewhere maybe in the south of france or mexico and and you know a kind of cycle had been completed because if you remember you know maybe you saw it in oliver stone's film that um you know when he was a kid when he was a small child the um, there was a he saw a, a road accident in which uh, a Native American uh, died, and he felt like the the soul of the Native American had been passed into his body, and and so and that was why he was a shaman. Um, and the view that Jim Morrison was a shaman was one very fiercely propounded by Danny Sugarman in his book about Jim Morrison. No one here gets out alive, and I too believe that Jim Morrison was a shaman, and you know. I wasn't yet a shaman, but I was only 13 and a half. But um, but I, I did sort of think that maybe, you know, if um, maybe, maybe there was a seed of, uh, you know, because obviously I was very sensitive and, uh, and you know, I was very responsive to the poetic lyrics of, of certain songs. And so... Far too smart, really, for the children in my class to to understand me, and um, so um, so on. So I wrote out the the entire lyrics to "People Are Strange" on the inside cover of my German exercise book, and uh, just as a little sign, just you know, for you know, just if I if I suddenly died and people were trying to work out what was going on in my mind, then they could open the inside flap of my German book and see the lyrics to "People Are Strange." And I said, oh, right, okay. He was too... Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. He was on a whole different plane to anyone else in, in the... And Mr. Abel... <laughs> Mr. Abel, my German teacher... Um, who's a very cheerful kind of red-faced Cockney guy in his probably in his late forties, early fifties, who often used to just take spend the whole lesson telling us funny stories about his childhood. He used to go to, to school with Bernard Breslau, and often he used to sort of uh, uh, sack off school and uh, go and watch Arsenal play with his mate Bernard. And um, anyway, he um, he saw the lyrics to "People Are Strange" uh, in my in my in my book. And uh, and read them out to the entire class. Uh, he didn't know that it was a Doors song, uh, and he read them out to the entire class, and asked me to come up and explain to the class what this meant. And uh, so that was that was quite embarrassing, really. So I guess that's kind of emblematic. That's also emblematic of my school days. And, uh, did did the pupils, you know, upon your. Uh, explanation of people are strange did they see you for the maverick you knew you was at this point um possibly but they didn't you know if they did they didn't you know because obviously <laughs> they were like sheep who were like conforming to to some kind of more lowly ideal of what it was to be a human being they you know they chose not to see what was kind of evident you know before them and um and so i had to plow a slightly lonelier furrow you know for for a while and you know and and you know risk being misunderstood um for for, for some time afterwards so no they didn't you know and I, I'm, I'm sure they're very cross with themselves now sure you know they yeah they you know i'm sure they feel very guilty and apologetic about that they didn't see uh, what an amazing uh brilliant talent Whose work I, I borrowed temporarily to write in the, in the back of my in the inside flap of my book. <laughs> well, I, I was a I was a you know I was a bit of a prick. <laughs> um, Did you enjoy school though? Uh, not massively, but you know I I was <laughs> um, not really. No, I I, I was. I, there were moments that were, you know, like in any school, you know, the funny things happen and you remember the funny things. Um, and I, you know, uh, I, I was, I did, I was just a bit, I was kind of a, a bit of a buffoon and, um, you know, and, uh, I needed, it took me a long time to sort of learn to sort of laugh at myself. Uh, and that didn't really happen in my school years. 
you know. So there, there we go. Did you know what you wanted to be at school? I find that guy hilarious now. Sorry. Did you know what you wanted to be when you was at school? No, I I was terrified. I didn't know what I could be. I mean, I'd like to have been a music journalist, but I didn't think that uh, that was at all possible. I uh, I was um, I didn't I I you know it was in, people who were music journalists lived in London and uh, they were really far away. And um, how was I even going to get to London? And um, how was I going to pass exams? And uh, you know that was just a crazy thing to. Um, to sort of think you might want to be. I mean, I, I, I knew what I didn't want to do. I didn't want to work in the local uh, factory down the road, which was where a lot of people seemed to be going. And I didn't want to work in my parents' fish and chip shop, which was, I was reminded frequently, was a was a viable option for me because I obviously wanted someone who might take over the business at some point. But uh, no, I, I had no idea. No idea. I, I never thought I could. I mean, I never thought I could become a music journalist. I, I, it was only when someone pointed, when I did a fanzine and um, and someone, and it, it just landed on, in the offices of Melody Maker that it became an option. And someone, they they got in touch with me. I didn't think I, I could do it. Was you a creative kid then? Um. No more than other kids, and actually, probably a lot less creative than other um, kids I knew. I um, um, I was um, I had some really clever friends who who could, you know, like, like my best friend, um, who I mentioned in in my book here, William, um, not his real name, but William anyway. Um, he um. I thought he was, you know, I thought he, I was just riding on his coattails most of the time. He was really funny. He had this brilliant kind of cruel, acerbic sense of humour. He was the person who got me into Monty Python. Um, he was he he had really interesting taste in popular culture. He loved Doctor Who. Um, he was an obsessive Gary Newman fan, um, and um, and later on he kind of he became a bit of a connoisseur of certain kind of. Uh, you know, like he loved Tony Hancock and Galton and Simpson in general. And uh, I thought he, you know, I thought he was brilliant. I thought if I could sort of like, and he was a really funny writer himself. When we did a fanzine together, all the funniest bits were written by him. So I sort of thought that, um, you know, if I just copied him enough, if I just kind of like rode on his coattails a bit, then whatever amazing success he would go on to, then maybe... I, I could have a bit of it myself. <laughs> that was that was it, really. Well, um, we'll stay in the, the, the formative years for uh, the next track, Pete, and I'm going to ask you the first song you remember buying from a record shop. First time, uh, first one uh, was A Taste of Agro by the Baron Knights uh, at the end of 1978. My mum my must have seen something just flashing my eyes as we walked past this record shop which was about half a mile from the house where we lived at the time the record shop was called discus and i remember it very clearly because what i remember is there were bits of the record shop that i couldn't really work out what they were because i subsequently realized that they were disused listening booths because the record shop must have been there since the 60s when record shops had listening booths and people could try an album before they they bought it and uh, we're walking past there and my mum, you know, she just picked me up from school and, we, you know, it was winter. I think it was early December. And um, and the night before, on top of the pops, the Baron Knights, I didn't know who the Baron Knights were 
prior to that. And for people who don't know, the Baronites were sort of briefly successful as a as a co- comedy group who, in the seventies, their most famous songs were by they kind of do a medley of of three songs that had pre- hit, been big hits that year, and they changed the lyrics to those songs so that they were funny, um, and uh, and so. They'd just been on Top of the Pops the night before doing their their track, A Taste of Agro, which was comprised of three songs, um, uh, a sort of Rivers of Babylon, but with funny lyrics about a dentist in Birmingham, um, and um, uh, another Brick in the Wall, I think, was it? Or was that the year after? That might be the year after. Um, and then uh, the Smurf song. Uh, and... Um, and I just thought, you know, like really, like the Baron Knights were my punk. You know, they were watching them on top of the pops the night before going into that record shop for the first time. Was I thought to take someone else's song, a serious song, and put funny lyrics to it, was as much of an act of insurrection as the Sex Pistols on the Tonight Show with Bill Grundy, um, you know, acting in the way that they did and swearing because. It was like a classic thing that a naughty kid might do at school. It was just to sort of take a serious song. I mean, I did think that was allowed. How, why would you even be allowed to do that? That, that was, and um, to, to take the mickey out of these, you know, like, you know, Rivers of Babylon. It was a very serious sounding record to me. And then here they were just sort of like singing, there's a dentist in Birmingham who fixed my crown. And while I slept, he filled my mouth with iron. And then they kind of like, they set up a dentist chair on in the top of the pop studio so one of them pretended to be the patient in the dentist chair and then the kind there was like a visual gag which obviously doesn't carry as well on the uh record where where the he goes and and it tells him to 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 spit out the the kind of the water in the receptacle by his side on the right and he 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 turns to the left and spits it out all over the hygienist or the dentist which I thought was the fun. So that was quite punky as well. They actually come spat out stuff on someone else on top of the pops. So all this was very naughty indeed. And like, so that was obviously um, the, that. so like my mum said, yeah, I'll, do you want to, do you want to go in? And I said, yeah. And she must have seen like my eyeballs just leave my head the moment I was in there. And she said, you can have, you, I'll, buy, I'll let you buy a record. And actually she was very lovely. She let me buy two. She let me also buy Summer Nights. Uh, by John and Olivia, but um, but um, a taste of Agro was the one I was really excited about, and I did that thing that all kind of children do when they buy their first record, which is I went home and played it twenty consecutive times, mm-hmm. it just somehow finding it funnier every time. And then when you can no longer play that that song again, you turn it over and then play the B side, and that was very confusing because the B side is a song called remember decimalization which is this very weird slightly plaintive not really i'm not sure it's supposed to be funny a song about like quite a sort of slow jammy kind of almost like a soul song about um about the days of pre-decimalization days uh and that's as, as weird as it sounds so that was my first the barren nights of my punk i'm loving that um I, where I, I grew up, there was a, there was an, a kind of awful venue uh, called the Circus Tavern, and uh, and it was pure sort of chicken in a basket 
And, mm. uh, and my earliest memories of driving past there and seeing the name the Baron Knights in like mm. neon and just thinking, oh, that looks exciting in there. Uh, mm. uh, yeah, I'm sure it. I'm sure it wasn't that exciting. Well, I saw I saw them in Cabaret a couple of years later, and um, I persuaded my parents to take me to uh, a place in uh, in Birmingham called uh, the the King. No, this was the New Cresta, uh, and um, and it kind of it ended rather. It kind of almost ended in tears because I I took my Baron Knights records to be autographed, and they 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 weren't quite as funny and pleasant and jovial uh, in real life as i expected them to be but uh, that's all I, I don't want to spoil the that's in the book so i don't want to spoil <laughs> okay. the ending okay um well before we move forward a little bit then um let, 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 let's talk about the book um hmm. and so for for those that haven't read it what can they expect from it pete um, it's a book. Um, it's kind of two books, kind of intertwined into one. It's a book about. It's a childhood memoir, but it's also a book about the way music can just kind of quite dramatically parachute into your life, and sort of how pop songs can just sort of explain your situation to you, or can help you to understand your situation, help you to forge an identity. That um, which I think for someone in my situation, uh, being a sort of second generation immigrant kid. You know, it became pretty clear to me very early on that I was kind of a bit more, I was becoming British and yet my parents were Greek and I couldn't really figure out, you know, I didn't have the mental capacity really to to figure out, to resolve that. And, uh, And so, but I think pop songs, and this is true of anyone from any background, I think, who loves pop music, I think pop, you know, when you're young, music can sort of help the songs. You the reason you connect with the songs that you connect with are because they are kind of they're by proxy. They're kind of explaining your situation to you, and they're a kind of area in which you can sort of decant feelings of confusion, and 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 understand them when they're reflected back at you through the the kind of words and notes and chords of these kind of powerful songs. So. You know, it's a sort of book all about that, you know, and I kind of, you know, the early years of my life were spent, you know, in and around fish and chip shops because that's what my parents did. And so it's just sort of about kind of just trying to belong, really, and just those, those, you know, getting it wrong. You know, there's a lot of, in any childhood, I think, there's a lot of confusion. And um, I think most children spend about 70% of their time being confused uh, just purely because... Who's going to have the time to explain the world to you? You, you really, you kind of have to sort of figure out, figure it out for yourself, and um, and so a lot of the, hopefully, a lot of the humour in the book. Hopefully, it's a funny book. You know, uh, comes from really just kind of going back and, and remembering how just all the ways in which you sort of get things wrong, all the kind of well-meaning but ultimately completely disastrous assumptions you make about how the world works and how you kind of um, fix them. So, um, such as you know, wanting brotherhood of man to be to to be your parents, or, or you know, just sort of um, you know, just being um, you know, very um, I'm just uh, you know, very very concerned about kind of pop stars who suddenly stop having hits and or you know and things like that. Just just weird kind of anxious kind of concern. 
you know, concerns about the world around you. I, yeah. I, st- I still get that. Do you? I, I, I still kind of get people not having hits. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I, 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 that, they used to do that feature in like Q magazine, like, where are they now? Yeah. And, yeah. And you know, I needed to know what was going on with the gin blossoms. You know, I was worried. You know, and yeah, it was it was I'm good. Too. <laughs> it was good to yeah. know that they're now writing for other people. But uh, yeah, I was I was so I was, oh, that's good. Actually, I didn't know that much. Uh, <laughs> I was concerned about you know, like ra- like racy. Like I loved racy, and suddenly. You know they were struggling. You know, like and I, because I was, I was weirdly loyal to bands like that. So I would put in, you know, even when they became so unpopular that my local record shop stopped stocking their new singles, I would, um, I would order them in, especially, and I'd be really, and I'd look at the chart, you know, on the countertop at Woolworths the next week to see if they'd broken their duck because, you know, they had three hit singles in a row. They had two top five singles, and then they released a single called Boy Oh Boy, which didn't do so well, got to about number 21 or something. And then and then they were just nowhere for a time, and I was just I was like, what a race, what a race are you going to do? This is, like, really bad, you know. Not least because I really liked them, and I wanted, to keep, I wanted them to keep making records. So I was, I was genuinely sort of concerned about them, about their well-being. And, um, and you know, there's a sort of... And that all fed into that was all part and parcel of a series of anxieties that you were encouraged to feel by pop, especially new wave and punk. You know, the whole sort of um, message of new wave is that you've, you haven't got a future. None of us have got a future, you know, and like you're going to. You know, if you end up with some poxy office job, you might as well be dead because that's like a living hell or like, you know, you'll be saddled with a mortgage living like a robot and you know who wants that kind of like you know all that sort of like that's what and then then nuclear war you might not even get make it till then because <laughs> of the bomb you know and you know and it's really you know you don't just die you die in a really horrible painful way yeah. there are loads of songs about this stuff. you know UB40 who we mentioned earlier on there's like third second or third single was uh, The Earth Dies Screaming mm. I mean shit you know, just, you know, God, what have I been born into? And so, um, so there, there was general this general sort of concern you sort of felt about, you know. And I remember in the you know one it's quite a poignant thing I remember um, little. I mean, that's what I really tried to kind of get get in the book. You know, the the kind of the little kind of the little kind of, the bits almost in between when the major things happen. The kind of the moments where life slides falls isn't quite what you know, like how it seems on the box, you know. So there's um, there's a story. Actually, this is in the book. There's a story about um, you know when I got uh, <laughs> when I got Twister for Crystal. You know, there were these adverts for this uh, for this game, which most people will know. I think called Twister, which is like a kind of a game where you lay out this plastic map with different colored dots and you spin the dial and wherever it stops, you basically have to put either your hands or your feet on the colored dots. And if you play it with your family or with a bunch of people, you all get in a kind of in a tangle and the first person to fall over, you know, is out of the game, you know, and the last person standing wins Twister. 
And so I got it for, you know, I thought, you know, you'd see this kind of nuclear family having the time of their lives. And of course, they were a British family. So that made it even better on, um, on, uh, on the telly and uh, in the adverts. And so I got Twister for Christmas. And then I opened it up. Uh, my dad <laughs> and I looked around at my family. I said, who's going to play Twister? And of course, like my poor, you know, my dad, who's like a very serious, middle-aged, Cypriot man. He was probably fucking knackered as well because, you know, the rest of the year he works in his chip shop. And all he wants to do is just tune in the radio to a bit to a, some kind of Greek church service on Christmas Day to make him feel like he's at home and just be left the fuck alone. And, um, <laughs> and, then, I, I, and then I turned to my brother. Of course, my brother is like, you know, punk has happened and he's too cool for school. And he's certainly too cool for Twister. And I look at him. I said, you got to play Twister. It looks at me as if to say, the fuck I am. <laughs> and so this, and I turned to my mother, like my poor like mother, who will kind of basically do anything for me. And I said, are you going to play Twister? And then at that point I realised that, well, someone has got to spin the dial. So um, it's just me. It's just me on the mat. <laughs> and still believing in Christmas fun. So I still have, I haven't given up. So I try, and so my mum's just sitting there, just spinning the dial, and I'm hoping that that somehow I can get into such a kind of tangle on my own playing Twister, that I just fall over and it's really funny and it's great. But um, so yeah, that that, that that's the sort of it, you know. But yeah, disappoint those little disappointments, you know, like little. I remember um, going back to what you were saying about being concerned about people that can't stop having hits. I remember. Uh, these um there was a there was a, a, a an actress on Grange Hill who would have been not much older than me um uh, Claire she played Claire in yeah. Grange Hill Claire and Stupot the big yeah. romance between Claire and Stupot I remember like you know that because that really captured people's imaginations for people of a certain for kids of a certain age it was like our Ken and Deirdre moment you know 100 percent yeah yeah and uh Paula Anne Bland, she was called the actress. I remember because she launched a solo career. She launched a pop career on the back mm. of, and uh, and I remember um, she did a version of the locomotion, and um, and it it was in in my local record shop in New Easy Listening. It was on the countertop of new releases, and no one bought it. And I can remember like each week when the bunch of new releases pushed Paula Anne Bland further towards the back. The, the the it was like the one unsold copy of the locomotion was still there until it got to the very back and then it was moved to the cheap rack and that was it for Paula and Bland and I thought God you know but most even failure is everywhere mm-hmm. <laughs> you know how how can I why on earth would I want to believe I might end up being a music journalist most people who try and do anything kind of fail so. <laughs> Look at look at Paula and Bland. They even tried to offer a, a biro, a free biro, shrink wrapped in with a single, and it still didn't do anything. So you know, I know. If it makes a you feel Paula any better, biro. sorry. If it makes you feel any better, Stupot is a successful boxing announcer now. No way, really. Yeah. yeah. Oh, right. that's nice. Uh, uh, yeah, he seems to be doing all right. He, you watch any big boxing events? He's a ring announcer. Oh, that's nice. Okay, I hope, I hope Paul is okay as well. You know, I, you know, it's hard not to worry. I uh, the generation of Grange Hill that that come after that, the the kind of Zamo era. I don't know if you'd kind of moved on mm-hmm. by that point. Um, I think Zamo was in the same year as uh, as Stupot and Claire. Anyway, 
so there was a, a girl called Faye, um, like a, a blonde girl called Faye, who uh, was, yeah. was one of my earliest crushes, I think. And uh, fast forward, you know, 25 odd years, and uh, she lives near where I live. And every day when I do the school run, I'd see Faye from Grange Hill. And wow. well, I mean, how do you deal with that? Do you go up and, you know, announce to her that, you know, I'm still probably a little bit in love with you or do you just leave it alone and, and just take comfort in the fact that she seemed to be doing all right she had a Range Rover yeah. you know she must be doing all right a Range Rover yeah there I you think go. you know I think at some point uh if she's that, that geographically near to you anyway at some point fate will conspire to sort of put you into a kind of conversation with each other yeah and then there will be a moment where it won't seem mad for you to sort of say that you know who she is and and you'll feel better for having waited until that moment. Yeah. So I think uh, uh, your patience will be rewarded, I feel. Thanks, Pete. That's all right. What's the song that soundtrack your years clubbing, mate? Well, for me, clubbing, the first, my first kind of big experience of clubbing was uh, a venue in, in Birmingham, uh, which uh, the venue was called Burberry's, and it was just a kind of standard kind of nightclub that you would get in the 80s in Birmingham City Centre. But they had, there was an Indian, so on Tuesdays, when, you know, it would have been kind of empty anyway, uh, there was an indie night called the Click Club, uh, which was run by a local promoter called Dave Travis, who I think is still very active in the Midlands. He's a very, very good photographer as well. And um, we um, and uh, the Click Club was really, um, you know, where I sort of came of age as someone who kind of goes out and, and you know, listens to sort of indie music with a kind of like-minded bunch of people, and we sort of dance till 2 a.m. And When was this roughly, Pete? This would have been, so I think the first time I went there would have been, actually I remember exactly when, it was late 86, uh, and it was to, to see the Soup Dragons. And uh, and that was, you know, I remember being heaving, I remember like not even being able to see the Soup Dragons particularly well, but it was very exciting. And, uh, and you know, it was that kind of, it very quickly got to a point where, you know, I went from not really knowing too much about this kind of music to, to knowing to sort of knowing all the songs, like all the songs that would be played by the DJs, you just know them. And, uh, and they were sort of, um, you'd just be dancing, you'd be on the dance floor for hours at a time. And, um, and so um, there, there were lots of songs, but I, I, the one that really stands out as the kind of quintessential click club song was uh, truck train tractor by the pastels. And it, uh, and I, you know, still one of my favourite singles of all time. I love the Pastels. They're a band I've followed in the intervening decade. And, um, you know, just scenes of total joyful abandon on the dance floor to Truck Train Tractor. You know, it had, it's sort of like, you know, the Pastels were often, history would often kind of characterise them as quite fey-sensitive kind of indie types. But there's, there's, a bit, there's a real sort of toughness so they sound like a really great sort of garage band, uh, certainly on Truck Train Tractor. There's a real sort of driving kind of momentum to it and uh, has a kind of like Jonathan Richmond-esque naivety to it. But, um, you know, a lot of that music got a bit of a kind of, uh, you know, got unfairly criticised, you know, as if the people that were making it didn't know they were fae or didn't know they were kind of uh, projecting a kind of sensitive... Um, out, you know, outlook, uh, you know, but 
that was the other thing I really loved about this little era in the history of, you know, indie music. It was very, um, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't dominated by machismo. Uh, it was very much, you know, even the dress code was quite unisex, kind of, you know, jeans and anoraks, you know, it just, you know, for boys or girls. And, uh, and it was just, um, it just felt to me like a real sort of a moment where, you know, we all of us who were there knew what we were kind of opposed to. We were opposed to that kind of slightly, um, uh, that kind of, that over, that almost intimidatingly male energy that a lot of even male, mainstream rock had. And it was just a different way of looking at pop music, you know. And so, first of all, it was happy to call itself pop music. It didn't want to call itself rock music. It didn't want to, it didn't, wasn't after that, um, that's that propriety that sense of uh you know being ex- co-opted into a world of grown-upness that rock implied um you know in many ways its spiritual forebears were sort of girl groups and motown groups yeah. who were because they they were groups that sang about you know teenage things like falling in love and you know they just seemed to be like the kind of emotional um rawness of that music combined with the melodic punch of that music seemed to kind of place it closer to a lot of the indie music of that time uh than than say punk or 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 anything else you know and those are the songs that got played and truck train tractor you know will forever be in my mind for for all of those things Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. For the next track, I'm going to ask you for a favourite song from an artist from your home county, please. Um, I'm going to briefly... Um, uh, it's, well, it's between three. So basically, it's... Uh, I'll, um, I've got to mention uh, 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 Churalia uh, by a uh, an Indian DJ called Bali Sagu, uh, I th- who I think was who, who was raised in Birmingham, and uh, producer d- DJ, and you know still very active now. I think he's got a new album about to come out. Churalia was a initially uh, was a well known song anyway. I think Asher Bosley did the the first version, so it's a well very well known uh, song and. Uh, and uh, but his version came was I think on a on an album called Bollywood Flashback and the extended version the twelve inch version is just fantastic and uh, and it was a real it was just a kind of classic example of something that Birmingham did really really well which was to sort of this kind of marriage of uh, this there was a real kind of harmonious coexistence between uh, between reggae dance hall on one side and Indian uh, and Bangra. Uh, on the other side, and I think I, mean, I don't know why exactly this should be, but I think a lot of it is to do with the um, the rhythmic similarity 
kind of coincidental rhythmic kind of compatibility of, of both kinds of music. And it's really well illustrated in in that version of Churalia, which is so you've got all this lovely kind of fragrant kind of loveliness of the kind of strings and um and and um and you know and but then you've got these kind of beats, these wonderful kind of loping kind of like dance hall beats. And it's just, um, you know, when I can haul myself out to go out running, Truralia is like, you know, one of my absolute go-to songs. And um, and so that reminds me of Birmingham because, you know, when I was a teenager, when I was in my mid-teens, and a lot of my friends from school who were uh, who were Indian, uh, whose parents were Indian, uh, would, uh, you know, was starting to go to these kind of afternoon kind of Bangra um, sort of events. And that was the music that you could, you, they sort of be talking about. I remember like like groups like Hera being mentioned, and then being really surprised that they would even kind of be occasionally um, be played on the John Peel show. That was a great, you know, the wonderful thing about John Peel, who would, you know, genuinely sort of, you know, multicultural approach to what he did, and even at times when his listeners didn't always want to hear it, the deal was that. If you wanted to hear that stuff, you also had to hear that stuff. And over time, you might grow to, to love it, which is something I sort of try and do in my, my show for Soho Radio. And um, so that honourable mentions briefly um, to uh, Nick Drake. A lot of people don't know that Nick Drake was a, was from the West Midlands. Because, I did you know, not people... know that. Well, because understandably, because, you know, I think he's associated with Cambridge a lot because you know he wrote his first songs in cambridge and but and people think oh well you know he's from tanworth in arden well tanworth in arden is a is a village that's sort of just kind of on the outskirts of solihull um um in fact it might even technically be in solihull i'm not sure but um but it's so it's like a 10 minute drive to to, to from solihull city centre to tanworth um and um you know, when I, I've met, I've interviewed Gabrielle Drake, his sister, quite a few times. And, you know, she talks about, you know, when, when they were kids, you know, their mum taking them to Solihull Shopping Centre in, in Mel Square, the municipal fountain in Solihull Shopping Centre, that I used to go to a lot as well. And, you know, to the kind of posh department store, Beatty's, as it was called then. And, you know, drinking drink, drinking tea and having a slice of cake i love the idea the mental image of nick the young nick drake drinking tea and having a slice of cake at Beatty's department store just in the same shopping center where i bought um you know uh steps in time by king and uh, and uh and uh rattlesnakes by lloyd cole and the commotions that uh, that really quite tickles me. I've also briefly got to mention um, my really ultimately my favourite singer songwriter of all time, Stephen Duffy, uh, from Birmingham. Uh, and so, just uh, I'll mention one song by The Lilac Time. Um, he's back. He's group The Lilac Time. There's a beautiful song by them called Street Corner. And when I think about growing up in the Midlands and the kind of smoggy industrial sunsets, which were very beautiful, they used to get at the end of a long summer's day. You know, when you were like still in single figures and all you had to worry about in the summer holidays was just kind of like basically playing with your toys and with your mates around the neighbourhood. And then you'd come home when you were hungry. And I associate that really strongly with Street Corner. Street Corner is such a beautiful song about coming of age in... Um, and I imagine, you know, I, I can't imagine it being any any other part of the world than 
than that because that's where both Stephen and I uh, and I both kind of grew up. And it's quite nostalgic, but it's that, it's that wonderful yearning quality that so many of those Lilac Time songs have. So pick one out of those. Well, um, let, let's 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 talk about Stephen Duffy for a, a moment. I, I was lucky, you know, it's the last gig I saw before uh, all of this happened. I saw Stephen do a um, an acoustic show at Rough Trade for the new album, uh, mm. and and it was it was wonderful. It was the first time I'd ever got to see um, Stephen Duffy. Um, and you're so much of a fan. I mean, am I right in saying that the label is named after a, a Duffy record? Yeah, my, so my label is called Needle Mythology, and Needle Mythology is the name of a, um, of a, of a song which appears on the album uh, Duffy, uh, which came out in uh, 1994, I think, or five, maybe five. And um, it's a beautiful song. That, that album it, it is kind of a bit of a misunderstood record, well, insofar as it's ever heard, because the first single that came out from it is a song called London Girls, which is a very kind of brittle sounding um, uh, song. It's a Brit, kind of very, it's associated with Britpop, but it's a song about kind of what was happening in Camden at the time. But it's not at all representative of the record. The record itself, most of it was recorded with Mitch Easter in the States. And it's, a, it's, a, it's got that fantastic kind of sun-soaked, kind of deeply melodic, jangly kind of power pop uh, energy to it. You know, you couldn't love Teenage Fan Club and not love that record. And Needle Mythology, the song Needle Mythology, is uh, really emblematic of that. It's such a beautiful. It's a song about. Um, uh, it's a song about someone who's kind of a young person who's getting into hard drugs, and uh, so it's a kind of a sad song, but delivered with that kind of, with just that kind of lovely kind of languorous kind of gusto yeah in many it's just occurred to me but it's a little bit of a sister song to serious drugs by the bmx bandits which was covered really brilliantly by gigolo arts and i think the gigolo arts version slightly edges it for me oh i've but, never um, heard that oh man oh are you in for a treat oh it's such a gigolo arts version of serious drugs it just has that it really just supersizes that sadness and that kind of sense of longing that's already... I mean, it's such a brilliant song anyway. And uh, and I think, actually, if Douglas or Norman ever get to listen to this, they can correct me if I'm wrong. But I do believe that Neil Young by Teenage Fan Club was written about the same person uh, as Serious Drugs is written about. So Serious Drugs was written by Douglas um, about a, girl, a, a girlfriend he had at the time who who just basically sort of said, oh, well, you know, you're kind of a bit of a lost cause, you know, you just need to get yourself on some antidepressants, uh, and that's just what you've got to do. And um, and then uh, Neil Young is, it, it kind of extends the theme a bit, and uh, so I think, you know, the lines such as drop to let, do you know the, do you know the Teenage Fan Club track, mm. Neil Young? Uh, so things like drop to letter from your name, well, Douglas, is spelled D-U-G-L-A-S. Uh, so there are little clues there. And uh, and then, of course, Neil Young, this is a wonderful thing about, like, the song, brilliant songs that beget more brilliant songs. Then Neil Young, uh, there's a brilliant, I think, Norwegian band, could be Swedish, but I think they're Norwegian, called I, I, uh, I Was the King, or I Am the King. Sorry, my memory's uh, screwing up. Uh, and they... Um, 
and they put out a song which Norman Norman Blake is a big fan of them anyway. Uh, and Norman Norman uh, and they they put out a brilliant single a few years ago called Norman Blake, which they misspell in tribute to Neil Young. Uh, uh, so it's spelled B L E I K, and uh, and that's kind of like. And it's is that in itself is a bit like a sister song to Neil Young. So these songs that kind of beget songs, and I think because of that song, it continues that because of that song, Norman became a real fan of this band, and and worked with them. I think he ended up producing them, and uh, and then as a result of which he um, he kind of ended up um, banging the drum. He turned me on to this brilliant singer called Annalise Frokadal, who's just about to release her third album in a few weeks. And uh, and I think he might have done some work with her. Anyway, I love this kind of this chain of events that just keeps on begetting brilliant music. Uh, yeah, brilliant. Yeah, Duffy, brilliant. it's such a brilliant record. Yeah, and uh, I'm uh, and it's one of my realization of a one of my life's ambitions to have actually uh, reissued uh, one of his albums, which was the follow up to Duffy, which was I Love My Friends, which is just one of my favorite albums of all time. I just think, like, Stephen Duffy, like, lots of people don't know about him, and like, it's criminal. And it's he's, he's one of them artists that, you know, as, as a 47-year-old man, Kiss Me, Ice on the Cake, and all that sort of stuff was, like, big pop hits, loved it, and then didn't really hear a lot from him. And then, uh, you know, the, the track Natalie, like, mm-hmm. oh, I just remember hearing that on the radio and just thinking, oh, my God, this is absolutely amazing. And just yeah. kind of reignited it. And then I remember seeing... Um, What's what's the uh, like truth now? Love for all? Is it? Uh, oh, all, all for love. All for love. love. Yeah. All, like, I yeah. remember seeing that on a chart show, and it was just like oh, Stephen Duffy. He's in a band, and it was like just. I know it's so exciting when he sort of reappeared in this band. Mm. They were called the Lilac Time, which again kind of dovetails with what we were talking about uh, before, with um, you know people referencing other musicians and other songs. But. Um, he called his group the Lilac Time. At some point, someone was going to call the group the Lilac Time because that line in the Nick Drake's Riverman is too good not to name a band after. So, so it's a real like, it's real kind of, it's a real flag in the sand moment. Like they got there first in the eighties when no one really listened to Nick Drake. He um, he named his band after a line in the Nick Drake song, and. Uh, and the reason I heard Nick Drake when I did for the first time, I heard Nick Drake for the first time at the end of, uh, in, in September 1989, on my very first day at university, I arrived at uh, this t- tiny university where I did my degree, Lampeter in West Wales. And, uh, and this girl who was like living a, a, in a room like three doors down from me just heard very shy girl called Sally who must have been a really really brave of her to have even knocked on my door but she didn't have any friends and she was lonely she knocked on my door because she could hear music playing in my room and she liked the sound of it so she knocked on my door and said I'm Sally I just lived down there we you know we became really close friends like she was like pretty much my best friend throughout the entire entirety of my degree and I said, oh, so, so come in, what, so what music are you into? The question you always ask someone at that age, what music are you into? And he said, I really like someone called, um, called Nick Drake. Have you ever heard of him? And I said, no, no. That's, that's, she said, oh, you'd really love him. Do you, do you mind if I play you something? And yeah, sure, you know, she scuttled back. She was wearing orange tie-dye leggings and she had long blonde hair like the Timothy girl and she was so shy. 
and she kind of scuttled back silently and came back a minute later with this cassette which just said Nick Drake on it and she played me Riverman and you know like anyone who hears Riverman for the first time I was just pinned to the spot and uh and I sort of said and then I noticed the sign the line about the lilac time oh no she said no the reason I said I like the lilac time and she said oh Nick Drake mentions the lilac time and that was the connection and um and so she became a huge I became a huge Nick Drake fan she became a huge lilac time fan and it was because of that line in that song and everyone's a winner Hmm. last track Pete uh a song that many may not know that you would like them to hear um I'm gonna uh I'm going to go for a, a, a reggae song which by a group called Johnny and the Attractions, uh, which came out, I think, in 1968, and it's called Coming on the Scene. Uh, although, you know, they recorded a handful of songs, uh, Johnny and the Attractions, and uh, before I think he went on to be in the Techniques for a while. I could have got that wrong, but I think... And Johnny, Johnny Johnson was a singer. And everything they recorded, you know, like, there's such a kind of incredible kind of romance about about kingston in in the late 60s going into the 70s um and you know i just sort of think i spent all my adult life trying to kind of get some kind of orientation within reggae and really trying to get my head around the fact that the 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 vast volume of music the vast volume brilliant music that came out in such a concentrated spell of time and it was all recorded on in in like three streets um orange street which is mentioned in uh the prince by buster and then madness and um i can't what were the other two i can't remember what the other two streets were and anyway singer man i'm not singing singer man was the song i was going to choose coming on the scene by john and the attractions it's like it's quite Mur- it's quite, got quite a murky sound to it. It's like it's recorded in a in a basement or a kind of a space that might even not where be some, maybe some kind of illegal or clandestine happening is is taking place. It's like the it's like the beginning of something. It's like you know hearing. It kind of sits at the cusp of, of of Rocksteady and Roots Reggae. It has a kind of Roots kind of depth to it. Uh, and it sounds muddy and it sounds murky. And, you know, it's got that thing of like, you know, when when a genre is new, it's almost like, you know, like... It's, you know, like when, when, it, when a, something kind of hatches out of an egg... In a in a in a in an otherwise quite well, or when when a kind of fish crawls onto the land for the first time, and something amazing is about to happen. Coming on the scene sounds a little bit like that. It's just a song about having fun and about how you know. Let's just get together. It's got this amazing kind of keyboard sound all the way through. So it's got slightly almost like a slightly demonic, um, sort of um, soupy swampy kind of keyboard sound kind of running through it a little bit kind of fairgroundy and uh and all all those johnny and the attractions recordings have got that kind of quality to them but coming on the scene is just a record that you hear and you want to hear 200 more just like it uh and those are the records that you're after those are the records when i'm doing my radio show that when i I get really excited when i've got one of those and i'm going to play it to people and uh 
you know that's totally that's 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 one of the records that you collect records for so yeah johnny and the attraction johnny johnson who died the other week sadly he moved to um to florida i think and ran a successful restaurant uh, after leaving the army um he went and joined the army in america i think and then he ran a restaurant and he died just a few weeks ago so that's another good reason to remember him okay um as mentioned Pete, we put together a Spotify playlist uh, for all of the records that we've, we've spoke about today. Um, I'll also uh, put a link in the bio to where people can go and get the book. Uh, and also I'll put a link in there so people can go and explore uh, the website for the label as well. Um, as we find ourselves kind of trundling into to 2021 um, with a bit of optimism, um, what are you looking forward to uh, happening this year, mate? And what's coming up professionally? Um, professionally, um, you know, we're, 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 I'm still doing the label and, um, it's not an easy time to run a record label, uh, because, you know, post Brexit, anyone in mainland Europe who wants to buy your records is pr- having to pay twice what they would have had to have paid last year because of the extra kind of customs taxes. Um, so it's going to be challenging, but we've got some really good, uh, releases, uh, on the way and, uh, and, you know, it just gives us more of an incentive to try and build more value, build more content into what those releases so that they really feel like a worthwhile outlay for people buying them. Um, we're putting out, um, there's an album, so we're reissuing um, an album by an Irish group called Whipping Boy. Um, oh, or- Amazing. Oh, good. I'm glad. <laughs> I, saw, I saw my band supported Whipping Boy at the Y Club in Chelmsford. Wow. <laughs> Would I have heard of your band? No, no, definitely not. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, what were they called anyway? Uh, we were called Lilo. Okay. Do you make records? Uh, we made one, yeah. Like, oh. But, uh, yeah. It's, uh... I'll look it up. <laughs> okay. Um yeah, well, that's an amazing record, uh, and uh, and so Heartworm is the out. So we're we're putting out an expanded version of that on vinyl and CD, uh, and which we haven't officially announced, but I think we kind of people kind of know, you know, it's happening. And you know, like all our records, it's remastered to the high specifications. We get we remaster at Abbey Road, um, and. Um, and uh, we press the uh, the vinyl factory, the old EMI pressing plant. So you know all the records sound amazing. And we got you know we are almost most of the way to. We've got a couple of very special reissues by uh, Neil and Tim Finn on the horizon. So um, you know there's a few things in the pot, but it's all very exciting. Wonderful. And, you know, in, in between all that, you know, I try and do a bit, you know, I I, I write. <laughs> so, yeah, it's fine. You know, it's a, it's a weird time, but it's, I, I'm an, I'm generally an upbeat person, so. Pete, it's cool. been an absolute joy today, mate. Thank you so yeah, much for your you. time, mate. So much. Uh, I, God, I've, I've, I've kept you going, I've kept you here for one and a half hours. So that's very, thank you very much. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's been great. It's been the easiest of interviews. You're you're clearly very good at what you do. I'm not surprised you have so many people subscribing to you. And uh, thanks for putting up with me. <laughs> oh, thanks loads, Pete. Cheers, mate. Okay. There you go. What a chat.
Now, I guarantee you're all going to want to go and get the book now because it's a great. I mean, it's it's sitting in front of me as I'm recording this intro. It's a great book, and uh, so go and go and check that out. The link is in the bio. It's called Broken Greek. Um, go and get stuck into the label. And if you've if you're new to Stephen Duffy, then then go and get stuck in because uh, there's some glorious music to be listened to there. And uh, and yeah, and just go and get stuck into all the songs over on the the playlist on Spotify. Um, thanks once again to Pete for giving up his time and having a, a a natter with me. Thanks to you lot for continuing to support this podcast and share it and retweet it and say nice things. It, it's it's a really lovely thing. And it's as as mentioned at the beginning of the podcast. You know this this is something that's really kind of kept me focused and, and and feeling chipper in uh you know these strange times that we're all going through so you know if you get a fraction of the joy listening as, as i do having these conversations then yeah we're all doing something okay right i'm back next time uh in the meantime head over to the website to find out anything else you need to know about this podcast www.offthebeatandtrackpodcast.com i'll see you next time thanks loads bye-bye i've got an announcement Save Our Souls Clothing, www.sosclothing.co.uk. Why am I telling you this? Because they're our official sponsor. Yeah, that's right. Go and check them out because their clothing is off the scale. You're going to love it. So they've decided they want to be our sponsor, which is amazing. And what I have to do is I have to tell you about why they're amazing. So here's a little bit of blurb. So they've only been going a year. And they're based in Southend-on-Sea, just up the road from me. They put the company together based on a, a love of tattoos and alternative music. And they've worked with some of the greatest artists around the world to produce these items of clothing that are as unique as you lot. All of the designs are printed using biodegradable, sustainable and water-based inks. In addition to that, they only print on garments made by members of Fairware Foundation. I mean, come on, great clothing and a conscience. Since going live in April last year, they've seen their audience grow massively and are now selling orders all across the world. And they were recognised by Cosmopolitan magazine as one of the best sustainable clothing brands alongside names such as Stella McCartney. I mean, that's quite a first year, right? So, go and check them out because they've put a lot of love into supporting this podcast and I couldn't be happier. What else they've done is they've given you 15% off. So if you head over to www.sosclothing.co.uk, do a bit of shopping, see what you like, throw it in the basket, and then on the way out, put in the discount code BEAT15, B-E-A-T-1-5, and that'll save you 15% off. Amazing, right? www.sosclothing.co.uk official sponsors of Off The Beat and Track Podcast. It's Off The Beat and Track Podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. Keep me, Stu Whiffin. Hey,